Hi, listeners. We're back uh, with not very much distance since our last podcast. Uh, We're very pleased to have with us Dr. Ruth Mitchell, who is a neurosurgeon and Nobel laureate and also happens to be uh, the older sister of Pube Slippers, who we had had on at the end of uh, October, I think it was, of last year around our Halloween episode. Um, And uh, Ruthie's here to talk about um, an interesting discussion that was had on Twitter about surgery in the prone position. And I'm going to throw to Gongas Girl to explain this further because as a gynecologist, I'm just a little bit lost. Oh, hi, guys. We had this um, we had this really interesting convo on Twitter last week where I was asked to prone a patient by one of the surgeons. And I said to the surgeon, oh, I said, oh, what do you reckon the risk of blindness is? And the surgeon said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you know that the prone position has a rare risk of blindness. And the surgeon hadn't really heard of it. And so this just kind of intrigued me because in anesthetic training, it's a pretty core topic. Uh, we worry about the prone position for a number of reasons, but um, post-operative visual loss is a thing that concerns us. And I just kind of put it on Twitter. I said, is this a thing for surgical training? And the responses were really instructive because uh, Ruth and other surgeons quite quickly came back to me and said, look, if you're involved in um, neuro or um, cardiac, you learn about it a lot, but other surgeons, not so much. So we're really delighted to have Ruth on here as our neurosurgeon to let us know about neurosurgical training for the prone position in particular to do with eyes so Ruth well I've got to say it's an absolute honor to be on your fabulous podcast and to be (laughs) hanging out with the gang even if it's not in person very Um, nice to have you here nice to have you here too bye the airways it's super fun And um, I think that it's a really great topic because it's something that we really emphasize in neurosurgery. And I I had, in preparation for this podcast, I had a little look at my logbook for the last 12 months. I realized that actually more than half of the operations I did on patients were done in the prone position. So it's something that's really, really like frequently utilized by neurosurgeons. It's really comfortable for us. And um, it's important for us that the whole team is comfortable with what we're doing and that the patients are well informed of what they're getting into. Um, and so I think it's, I'm really glad that it's been highlighted. And that's, you know, obviously one of the things I love about Twitter is that often you get into these discussions, which can improve um, both patient care um, for people who are involved in looking after patients, but also the awareness in the community of some of the sort of technical considerations we have. So, yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting. Gongesco, what were some of the comments that came up? Because I'm in the back. Yeah, so some of the things were, you know, about the actual physical position, like, you know, the patient's head, you know, the patient's head down. And if you position them so that they've got direct pressure on their eyeball, that can cause blindness. But the other problem is in uh, spinal surgery or surgery with lots of blood loss or long surgery or people who are older, um, they can get this thing called ischemic optic neuropathy, which isn't related to direct pressure on the eyeball. So, um, Ruth, I'm, what, what do you learn about that in your training? Well, I think the main thing that we learn really early on is we're going through the process of learning to consent a patient um, for an operation that's going to be performed prone. And, you know, a significant proportion of a modern neurosurgical practice is spine surgery, whether it's cervical, thoracic or lumbar spine. And the vast majority of those procedures are performed in a prone position with, you know, slightly different equipment and padding and so forth, but prone nonetheless. And so 
we we learn very early that you have to let patients know if they're going prone that there is a remote chance that they could experience either monocular or binocular blindness as a result of the operation, which, as we always say with neurological impairment, could be temporary or permanent. Um, and as you as you say, part of that is because there are times when there's been a, a sort of an error made with the positioning, so there's some pressure but sometimes it's just because they're a little bit head down um, that you know there's some pressure considerations there and so not all of the mechanisms are completely understood um, so generally we quote for a prone position something between you know one in 500 or one in a thousand chance of blindness from being positioned prone now I haven't ever seen this happen, but it's certainly something that's on the pre-printed consent forms that we used in the most recent hospital that I worked in, um, which is a really useful tool, both for giving patients informed consent, but also for training our juniors that like, this is something you mustn't forget to mention. Um, and it's really instructive then when you get into the operating theater to be able to talk through what are my considerations when I'm positioning a patient prone. And certainly one of them is pressure areas around the eyes. But, you know, that should then lead us to think about all the other things about, you know, where else is there pressure on this patient? And is there any way we can get the patient a little bit more head up, just a little bit? Um, would that be helpful for anesthetics? You know, keeping that conversation open, can all of these little things can really reduce those risks. So I think it, it's a great conversation to be having. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. And it's wider than um, just spine surgery because I was in the tweeting, it became apparent that steep, steep head down for, you know, for, you know, for robotic surgery, patients are uh, on their heads for many hours. And I was interested to see a paper that showed that 28% of people who are in the steep head down have, um, you know, some visual defect postoperatively, which is asymptomatic and resolves in three months. So I'm really, um, I'm really pleased, Ruth, that you're kind of singing the same tune on there because, you know, our training is so siloed, but it is very pleasing yes. to see that yes. the surgeons and anaesthetic training is pretty much the same. I have a question about, unsurprisingly for inclusive guiding, I've got a question about the logistics um, of the actual anaesthetic. How do you do an um, anaesthetic in someone who's going to be prone? Do you do that supine and then put them prone? How does that look in terms of the cooperation and discussion between the surgeon, Ruth, like neurosurgeon and anaesthetic team? There sound like a few questions, and I think the anaesthetic questions are the first lot. So maybe Gong Gaskell, you're, you're the best anaesthetist on this yeah. one. <laughs> so, I mean, I think from our point of view, often we get the patient off to sleep either on their own bed or these fabulous new slash expensive Jackson tables, which bother me because they've got that headpiece that can make intubation difficult. Uh, you get your lines in, you get them off to sleep. And then kind of when you're in this really well-rehearsed team, everybody kind of knows what to do. And I remember when we first got a Jackson table, which is a thing like a spit roast lamb where the patient's kind of on their back, um, they're positioned all the lines are put in, and then there's this piece put on top of them, and they're turned 180 degrees. I'm so glad you brought up the rotisserie. I need to <laughs> know mean? that I am I am coming mean. to you this this weekend as we're podcasting this from from central Melbourne, where we have the Lonsdale Street Festival. The noises of the you know Melbourne's largest, uh, uh, you know uh, the the largest Greek community outside of 
um, Greece are currently celebrating the street outside of uh, outside of where I live. And so I'm very mindful of rotisserie type motifs at the moment because they're <laughs> doing some heavenly work with some 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 um, some beautiful things down there with rotisseries. There are times when we use this thing called the Jackson table um, and we turn patients prone um, on uh, in this like seemingly like draconian manner where they get um, you know, they get strapped in, there's four seat belts that go around the whole patient and they're kind of sandwiched between the, f the flat part of the bed and then this, um, this, you know, radiolucent frame and they get, they get flipped over. And I think that that particular process of making a patient prone is probably the best example <laughs> of why communication and teamwork are so important. And certainly, um, inquisitive gone, I'd love to see what it would look like to do uh, a, a simulation around, um, putting a patient prone in a Jackson table, because I think it would be incredibly helpful. Here's a patient with all their lines in catheter, central line, art line, you know, their tube, they have an NG tube and everything. They're, they're lined up, you know, to, to, to the hilt and, and you're about to swing them around in the air. And um, it does seem a bit crazy, but there are times when it's the right thing to do. And particularly those things are um, when you've got an unstable spinal fracture, it's, it's some surgeon's preference to turn someone in that way because you're going to do the least moving of the patient um, it, along that central axis. And, um, you know, I think making sure everyone knows, A, what is it that we're trying to achieve? B, what is the sequence of events we're going to do in, and in what order? And, and who's going to call this thing? You know, we, that has to be clearly identified before anyone sort of does anything. Yeah. And when it's done well, it's like poetry. It's magic. It's like choreography. And if people are new to it, it can be really tumultuous. And, but you have to take the time, make sure everyone's on the same page, uh, and talk about it before you go forward with the procedure. And, and then it'll go well, even with a new team who haven't worked together. Yeah. That is amazing. During all of this, um, well, first of all, that, I mean, that just sounds like teamwork makes the dream work, um, which we're all about here. But the look on my face while you were describing all of that, if you were in on the video conference, like, you'd, my, the look on my face was, of um, okay, that sounds interesting, but exactly as you described, I was kind of like imagining, oh, my God, what's that like? And it's interesting that you said simulation because, yeah, I think if you were a trainee or any member of the team learning about what that's going to work like, it'd be quite instructive, I think, to kind of be... Absolutely. Have Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I remember when we got our first Jackson table, it wasn't poetry at the beginning, I'll tell you that. Actually, at the beginning, we decided we wouldn't do it after hours without our trained wards people there and present. Um, there'd been those couple of case reports where a patient had fallen because they were incorrectly strapped in. So people were quite yeah. frightened of the whole thing, actually. So actually, then, simula simulation, simulation would have been great. Sounds really sensible, yeah. But to, as a testing, yeah. as a yeah, way wow. to get the team ready rather than, you know, not so much as education, but also as a way to get the team ready, which is... Yeah, but Ruth's right. On 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 lists that just prone people all day, every day. Now it's just like it's just bread and butter, and it is. It's just lovely to watch. You know, some of the time you're doing these things because, like, the most common indication for having to put someone prone on a Jackson table using that technique. And there there are certain variabilities. Some people wouldn't do it that way, but for those who do and who think that's the best way to do it, you know, often you're having to do it after hours because that's when someone comes in with a spinal fracture that needs fixing before morning, um, and so. You know, that's where 
really good leadership and teamwork come in as, as you know, saving the day. Um, so I'm so glad that you've got a Jackson table and you're not frightened of it anymore, Gone Gas Girl, because it is, <laughs> it is one of my favourites, I've got to say. Perfect. Well, as we wrap up, Ruth, and thank you so much for joining us, and I don't know if you're going to go down to um, Lonsdale Street and get yourself a subaki or something, um, but any last, any last comments? Anyone? So... I'm just really pleased that we can have a conversation about something like this that has come off of a discussion on Twitter. I think that, um, like any other thing, that the little bit frightening, you know, it, it's so it's so much fun when it works well. And having an open conversation with with you know certainly with the anaesthetist while you're getting set up for the case, while they're getting ready to put the patient off to sleep, can can you can avoid so many pitfalls by doing that. So you know, speak up and be confident, and and you can really um, learn a lot at work and do the best for the patient. So it's great to be able to talk about it. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Right on, Ruth. Well said. Good job. Thanks. Thanks. See you soon. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Bye.